Hello and welcome back to Perspectives. Today's guest is Lewis Jones. Lewis is an evidence-based nutritionist helping clients with their goals surrounding food, be it performance, weight loss, muscle gain, and everything in between. In this episode, Lewis and I discuss the fundamental principles behind nutrition, whether good or bad foods actually exist, why Lewis hates the term cheat meal, how you can get the results you want, the best diet for you, and much, much, much more. This is a really, really enjoyable episode. I have come away with a much clearer understanding of nutrition, along with some useful tips to implement in my daily life to both feel good and hopefully look good as well. Without further ado, Lewis Jones. Lewis, welcome to the show. Rhys, thank you very much. The world of nutrition is fiercely debated and everyone seems to have an opinion on it, all with different ideas. Why do you think nutrition is such a minefield to navigate? I think I think there's a few reasons and they all play into each other. So the first being that everybody eats, everybody feeds their kids. So everyone, whether they like it or not, has some kind of emotional attachment to food. So that's why there's, I think, so much interest in it initially compared to like any other science. You don't see many other science fields debated like you see nutrition debated online. Mostly probably because of the high interest and the high number of people, like I said, everyone eats. Then because of that, I think you have, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? I am not. So Dunning-Kruger effect, so it's like a sort of a graph and you learn a little bit, so you learn the basics and you feel like an expert and then you learn a little bit more and you realize you actually don't know very much at all. And that's called like the valley of despair on the graph. And then you learn more again and that's when you become an expert. But so many people are stuck on the first part of the Dunning-Kruger graph. So they know a little, but their confidence of what they know is very, very high. So people know the basics and they think that gives them, you know, a lot of confidence that they know everything there is in the field. And so the final point is nutrition research is very difficult to do. So there's a lot of observational epidemiological studies which are getting better, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're flawed a lot of the time. So the answer to this is typically a randomized control trial, which if I compare, if you compare it to a drug trial, for example, you give someone the drug, you give someone a placebo, you test what the effects the drug had, and if there's any placebo effect with that. Difficulty of doing that with nutrition is, let's say, for example, you want to study vitamin C. Everyone coming into that study is not going to be initially deficient in vitamin C, unless they are yellow walking in and they have scurvy. There's a pirate so, walking through the door. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's that. So you're not, everyone's baseline is different. So that's going to give different results and then following on from that food and nutrients interact with each other within the body so you've got that issue and even individual genetics can change how certain foods and nutrients interact within the body so typically in the research this leads to quite underwhelming results they're not black and white answers if you read research it usually says more research is needed in this area or we can't conclude from this blah 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 
But the issue with that is that people like black and white dancers, people like good and bad, this or that kind of thing. And if the authorities can't give you the answer, some dickhead on the internet probably will. And you see the narrative, This and most drifters in nutrition follow a similar narrative online, so be aware of this one. And it often goes that you've been lied to by the authorities, by the system, blah, 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 blah. What we know is wrong. Follow me for the answers. Usually involves you parting with your money to them for the solution to the problem. Um, whether that be like a book, a product, a supplement. But most grifters follow that narrative. So yeah, I think it's a multifaceted answer there. But does that answer the question? Yeah, so, so it's almost like a spectrum rather than a black and white answer when it comes to nutrition and a lot of things. Would you say that it's a good idea to be a bit cautious of if someone is trying to sell you something then? If there's someone on the, maybe someone you follow, something you read about in a magazine and and as you said, there's a product or a book that they're trying to sell. Is that normally quite a good indicator that you should be a bit careful when you're taking advice from them? Yeah, I'd always always say default to be scepticism around this kind of stuff. Yeah, usually if, if like I say, they follow that narrative of you've been lied to, and don't get me wrong, there's, there should be a little bit of distrust in the authorities, in like big food, big pharma, that kind of thing, especially after the last few years. But that's the narrative that'll follow. You've been lied to, what you know is wrong, everything you've been told is wrong. And then typically you have to give them some finances and they'll give you, give you the answer. So boy, boycott big farmers, that's what we say. Follow me. Okay, can we take it right back to basics? Let's try and understand the fundamental elements of nutrition. What do I need to know about calories and how we utilize them? Okay, so a calorie is simply a unit of energy, unit of measurement for energy in food. So food contains calories, we eat food, and that generally dictates weight loss and weight gain, which is energy balance. You may have heard calories in, calories out. And this is a law of thermodynamics. So this comes from Newton's second law. So it's not a theory, and anyone to spell in the calories don't matter for weight loss or weight gain, typically ignore them as well, I'd suggest. And the amount that each amount of calories that a person needs is made up of your what's called TDEE, which is your total daily energy expenditure. And this varies for people and depends on a number of things, uh, sex, height, weight, activity level, training volume, genetics to some part. And it's made up of a few different sections. So you've got your basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate, which is, they're not a bit the same thing, but they're often referred to as different names. EMR and RMR, and mostly when people talk about metabolism online, that's what they mean. And that makes up the general population around 70% of your total calories. So if you were to sleep for 24 hours, for whatever reason, not wake up for a day, that's your BMR. So it's the, it's the bodily functions that are going on without you thinking about them, spontaneously within the body, digestion, etc., etc. That's your BMR, and that's about 70% of the general population. Then you've got your NEAT, which is your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. This is around probably 15% for most people. And what's really interesting about NEAT is it's, it's, a, it's a spontaneous movement. So it's what, what we're doing now. It's what I'm doing when I move my hands. It's it's movement that you're not intentionally doing. So it's not exercise. And that actually makes up like a large proportion. And you'll see a lot of people online say that it's really good for weight loss to increase your NEAT. And a bit of semantics on my part here. But as soon as you intentionally try to increase your NEAT, you're not actually increasing your NEAT because it becomes intentional in that sense. But the the point that they're trying to make is still a good one, that it's a large portion of your day, of a large portion of your calories, sorry, comes from NEAT. So increasing that is beneficial to increasing your total daily energy expenditure. Then we have the TEF, which is the thermogenic effect of food. 
that's around 10% typically and that's essentially the calories required to digest the calories in the different macros and each macro has a different value for there so protein has the highest TEF that's 20-30% carbs next around 6-8% and fats around 2-4% so what that says is if you're going to have 100 calories of protein 20-30% of those so 20-30 calories get used in the digestion and utilization of that macronutrient and then finally, top part of the section, about 5% of the remaining is your exercise activity thermogenesis, which is a bit underwhelming when people hear that and they think, well, I'm doing this exercise and it's actually impacting such a small amount on my total daily energy expenditure or total calories I use in a day. And I think there's a couple of things to take from that. So this is where exercise on its own isn't a great weight loss tool which often gets overstated online and people take that the wrong way is you shouldn't exercise or what's the point of exercising. Exercise is the number one thing you can do to improve your health, in my opinion, overall, both physical and medical. And it improves your health and associated market of health independent of weight loss, which is typically what we don't see with diets. Diets generally need to incur a weight loss to improve health markers. Exercise doesn't. Another point I would take from that is this is why it's so important to find an exercise regime that you enjoy. Because if you're just doing it for weight loss, it, like I said, has such a small impact, then it's, it's probably not going to be successful for you long term. Yeah, so the, the enjoyment factor is actually quite interesting because I feel like a lot of people say, oh, I don't go to the gym just because I hate it. But there are so many other avenues of exercise that you can pursue going out for a walk each day. Yeah. I know now that the weather's getting better and at lunchtime I might go out for a walk now rather than in the in the bleak midwinter, it's less appealing to go out in the rain. But now it's just nice to get some sunshine and have a break from the office. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's probably people listening to this thinking, well, hang on. Me personally, I just started exercising a month ago and I've lost a load of weight. Or I know someone who started exercising and they lost a couple of stone in a year or whatever. Okay. And they're probably thinking, well, what you've just said almost contradicts what I believe. And I think there's a couple of things that if you're starting exercise from zero, that's obviously going on top of what you're already doing. So that that 5% was, was nothing before. So you're adding in a new chunk of calorie expenditure of the day so there's that and mostly what you see when someone starts exercise or, or ups their exercise regime there are a lot of other health promoting activities usually improved diet that come along with it which are also probably part of that bigger picture so it's not just the exercise that has gotten there it's a combination with health promoting um, activities but why i say exercise again isn't a great tool for weight loss there's only so much you can do so if you're already someone who's quite active which probably needs to more than 5%, but let's just say you're, you're putting five days a week. Adding in extra sessions to lose weight is quite difficult to do. Furthermore, exercise will probably increase your hunger, hunger as a natural way of the body to try and get you to almost eat back what you've used. So there's that issue. And that's why people also push the do more neat or do more like light exercises that it's just easier to walk a little bit more. It's easier to stand a little bit more. It's easier to like take phone calls, stood up, all these little things than it is to go for another run or another week of session. Is there a is there a bit of a grey area would you say with what's considered neat then and intentional exercise? So if you are intending to increase your neat by going out and getting more steps in a day or spending more time on your feet, is that does that not count as intentional or it it, it does and that's where there's just some confusion online. But my point is so that would be exercise in my opinion. But there's exercises in going for a walk and then there's exercises in training and I'd like to try and separate those two but it's, it's really semantics at this point the point that people make when they say move more is is a good one whether it be intentional or 
or unintentional. As soon as it's intentional, it becomes part of that eat. But does it really matter? Is, is the point? I guess I'm trying to make. Yeah. So we'll get onto diet and what the sort of optimal diets are a little bit later. But for now, can we just discuss like protein, carbs, and fats and how these work in their basic functions? Because I'm sure there's quite a lot of confusion around them, and I find there's a lot of you know fear and resistance surrounding carbohydrates. For example, when you're talking to people about diets, they seem to cut carbs. That seems to be the first thing to go always. I don't know why, but it it's always seems to be the scapegoat in diets. It's always you know oh I'm on a diet. I'm not eating carbs. I'm not eating bread. I'm not eating potatoes. So can we just break down the individual mechanisms or the macronutrients and, and discuss those? Yeah, so I'll try and keep this fairly high level and basic. Carbohydrates is the body and brain third energy source. These are either used directly as blood glucose or stored as glycogen in the cells of the muscle and the liver for later use. And they get converted from glycogen back to glucose when we need them after stored. Typically, carbs will be used as energy for intense exercise. So when you get above around 70-75% of your max heart rate, that's when carbs start being the preferred energy source. And if you, you don't have carbs or glycogen stored at that point, compared to if you did, you won't perform as well. So that's another little side note on why carbohydrates are so important for athletes or anyone doing intense exercise. Fats used as free fatty acids or stored as adipose tissue and fat stores within the body. Essentially, we can store infinite amounts of these like glycogen gets capped at a certain amount, a few hundred grams. Fat, as you know from seeing extremely obese people, like you don't ever get to a point of using all the fat stores up. There's just more more places to store your fat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can pick your bigger and bigger, essentially. And yeah, so fats typically used during lower activity exercise. So it's aerobic glycolysis, actually, which means burning of fat during times of when oxygen is present. So what we're doing now, we're typically burning fat. And that's why... When you choose like zone two exercise or fat burning exercise, that's why it gets called that because it's the energy source that's being used during that activity. And then you've got protein, which is typically used for growth and repair of muscles, but also most other tissues in the body. And it's the only macro that we can't store. So that one sort of gets used straight away or excreted. We don't store protein up like we do with um, carbohydrates and fats. Does that mean if you can't store protein, there is a limit to the amount of protein that you can consume in order for it to be beneficial? So you're not knocking back 100 protein shakes a day and expecting to turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight? So to an extent, yeah, and I'm glad you've asked that one because there's a lot of misinterpretation, I think, of this data. I used to misinterpret it myself a bit. So you can absorb a lot of protein. So protein absorption, probably like 100, 150 grams in a sit-in. The stomach will just slow that absorption down. So it's almost like you just get drip fed that protein. But I think what you're talking about in is there a max amount to get the benefit from is muscle protein synthesis, which is often the one studied as a proxy for muscle growth in research. And that does seem to get capped. The sweet spot often spoken about is like 20 to 40 grams. That's enough. 20 to 40 grams of protein in a sit-in will spike muscle protein synthesis or cap it out to around, well, and it stays there then for three to four hours. And any more doesn't really seem to incur any more benefits. So once you get past 40, it does seem to go up slowly, but you're, for example, if you add enough 20 grams on top of that 40 grams, you're probably getting like a two or 3% increase. Then it gets to the point of, you know, is that benefit worth it? So if I was looking to put on some muscle, it would be 20 to 40 grams every three to four hours. Is that correct? 
yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So you can spike MPS, let's just say 30 grams. You can't then increase it again for another three to four hours until the amino acids in the blood are back below a certain level, and then you can spike it again. So if you were looking to maximize muscle growth, every three to four hours, a serving of at least 30 grams will keep MPS elevated pretty much all day. So that's, that's sort of optimizing from that. But back to the point as well, anything above that. So if I was going to eat 80 grams, like two chicken breasts or whatever, is it then just being wasted? And no, because that's just looking at MPS. Various other tissues in the body also require turnover of protein. So your gut, your stomach lining, that does it. All other organ tissues use it. And it's only probably about 10 to 20% of the protein that we absorb will get used for MPS. So you're not wasting anything above it. It's simply being used for other things that we typically don't think about. But yeah, if you just want to maximize MPS for muscle growth and recovery, which most people care more about than turning over the tissues of their gut, then yeah, 30 to 40 grams every three to four hours. So it's almost a bit better to overeat on the protein side rather than undereat. Is that a fair assessment? Um, Depending on your goal. I would say it's better to eat as much as needed. Okay. So probably to your question, yeah, it would be better to overeat than undereat because then you know you're eating enough. Though once you're eating enough, you don't really get any benefit from eating more. And if we're talking about hypertrophy, so muscle gain, that is about, or research shows that to be about 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Now, anything above that isn't unsafe, unless we've got underlying liver kidney issues and stuff, but I won't go into that. There's been studies up to about, I think even four grams per kilogram of body weight, which is in loads, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you struggle to eat that much. Um, just 50 legs every time you sit down. A steak. Literally, the <laughs> chicken and turkey yeah. Yeah, and steak. So there's no more benefit from it. So I'd argue there's no point to do it for a few reasons. The top one being that it's just the most expensive macronutrient. So, you know, save your money, eat carbs and fats because they typically taste quite nice as well. So yeah, once once you get to that 1.6 to 2.2, you won't really incur any benefit from, from going higher. Also, if muscle gain is your goals, or your goals, sorry, protein is the most satiating of the macronutrients. So it's going to keep you fuller than the other two and then if you were to eat more protein you might run into the issue that you're actually going to struggle to eat as much calories as you need to gain that weight because you've just eaten so much protein and you just fall you're struggling to get more food in yeah so just going back to carbs as well and i mentioned that obviously carbs tend to be cut first quite typically in a lot of diets yeah why, why do you think carbs are always the first to go when people are considering dieting um because they have probably seen the same things that you're talking about and just believe that that's the way the way to go, I'd say. Yeah. It can be useful for some people, cutting carbs. It's a simple heuristic, I guess, just removing a food group, but it doesn't have to be that way if you want to lose weight. You don't have to cut carbs. Carbs aren't the enemy, they aren't evil. They're killing you. You can eat the bread, so you can have the pasta, and you can eat those biscuits as well. Yes, I absolutely love bread. Yeah. Like if someone said to me, or I said to someone, if I didn't, if I didn't know this stuff, obviously, um, or you know, I want to lose, want to lose a bit of weight, and they say cut out bread, probably last about three days. Yeah. I think fuck this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to, I did used to be so bad with that as well. Just bread and butter. It's quite bad, really. But I just thought, oh, what do I want as a snack? <laughs> just butter some bread. That's yeah. me done. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, I also think. A lot of the modern food environment, a lot of hyperpalatable foods are high in carbs and fats, to be fair. So overconsumption of calories typically isn't going to come from protein. It's going to come from these other ultra-processed hyperpalatable foods, which are typically higher in carbs. But then the issue with that is 
this all gets grouped as carbohydrates and then people have got like potatoes, rice and all the other carbohydrate-based foods within there and they think that they are then bad for them, quote-unquote. Okay, so speaking of good and bad food then, I've noticed even in supermarkets and restaurants you can get sections of the menu or, you know, certain areas in the aisle on the packaging that's labelled as, you know, healthy or good for you, be good to yourself, all of that sort of thing. Is there such a thing as a good or a bad food or not? No, not in my opinion. There's no good or bad food. There's simply good and bad diets. Labeling the food good and bad, in my experience and in my belief, it will lead to more issues than improvements. Eating disorders, poor relationships with food, unsuccessful diets, and so on. So I don't think we should label food good and bad. Food is simply food. It's fuel. It doesn't have any moral value. So it's simple. Food isn't good or bad. Now, there are foods which are more health-promoting than others. There are foods you should probably include more of in the diet than others. But a single food in isolation is not bad or good. Would you say that extends to things like cheat meals as well? So shouldn't really view stuff as cheat meals because yes yeah i don't i don't demonizing foods in a certain sense exactly yeah it's not you're not cheating your diet you're simply enjoying foods that you enjoyed because life's too short to not eat food that you enjoyed so yeah so labeling meals days as cheats again i don't tend to like so I've noticed certain social media sort of influencers or magazines that you read certain articles I've read before they tend to throw around certain scientific related terms I think to perhaps maybe bolster the case for trying to determine if a food is or, or sell a food as if it's good or bad and that's often insulin that comes around a lot in the term of insulin spiking so I read in an article the other day that you shouldn't drink orange juice because it spikes your insulin so I want to just explore that a little bit further and just understand exactly what we mean by insulin spiking and what does it mean in a dietary sense. So insulin is a hormone secreted by the cells of the pancreas. When we ingest carbohydrates and also protein, by the way, which doesn't really get spoken about online because typically when people are telling you insulin spikes are bad for you, the narrative is typically to cut carbs like we just discussed, or carbs are bad. But protein and amino acids also cause insulin to be excreted from the pancreas. Mm -hmm. And what it does, it allows us to use the glucose directly or store it as glycogen, as we discussed earlier. So it's a completely natural response to when we ingest a meal containing carbohydrates that insulin would go up. If it didn't, you'd have an issue. So typically my advice, if you hear anyone talking about insulin spikes in a negative way, outside of the context of someone being diabetic or pre-diabetic, typically ignore them. Same with when they talk about blood glucose levels being spiked. If, if, those, if those blood glucose levels are chronically raised, like they don't come back down, then there's the issue. Then you've got a problem. Then you're probably diabetic or pre-diabetic. And then this stuff starts to matter. And then, yeah, you should be wearing the CGM, continuous glucose monitor. But otherwise, you don't need to worry about it. The mechanism is often pushed with insulin, by the way, is when insulin's excreted, like pharmacists, so that fat burning we spoke about sort of doesn't happen. And they say, well, insulin insulin blunts fat loss, essentially, is, is the mechanism that is pushed, which is which is true as a mechanism. When insulin is raised, glycolysis slows or stops. But fat loss and gain, back to the earlier point, is governed by energy balance, not by insulin. So why does it matter? I think give you an example. If someone's calorie requirements for maintenance were 3,000 calories, if they were eating 2,500 calories with a diet of 60% carbohydrates, which is high, they will they will lose weight, even though insulin has probably been raised quite high and multiple times during that day. 
if someone, if that same person was eating 3,500 calories on a, let's just take a genetic diet, so very, very low carbs, insulin would have been raised nowhere near as high as in the first scenario, but they're eating 500 calories more than their maintenance calories. They will gain weight. So that, that example completely puts to bed insulin, blunt and fat loss argument, which is often pushed. So try and keep it simple then and if you're the average joe then it's it's more of a case of understanding the fundamentals rather than getting too concerned about things like insulin spiking and and things like that then mm-hmm. yeah definitely it's, it's the lay person doesn't need to doesn't need to worry about this stuff jumping back actually to the the calorie point and calories in calories out and that's what dictates weight loss um that that's true, as I've said, but it, that often gets overplayed online as well. And it becomes a calories versus food quality argument and a quantity versus quality. And it's not it's not either or, it's both and, but nuance just is not sexy on social media. So you never really hear it put like this, but quantity of calories will dictate weight loss and weight gain, but food quality will impact quantity, if that makes sense. So if you're eating foods of low quality, just think the foods that we typically enjoy. If you're including a lot of those in the diet, they're probably not going to satiate you, probably not delivering your protein needs. You will likely then overeat. So it's not either or with a with the food quality and quantity thing, it's both and. Is there an argument to say that better quality foods deliver more micronutrients and vitamins and things like that as yeah. well? Yeah, definitely. So back to the, if you were to take the calories in, calories out to the extreme and the old school, like if it fits, if it fits your macros kind of diet, which you could do eating pizzas, chocolates, ice creams all day. Yeah, you could do that. You'd struggle to not overeat doing that. And then like you say, if you're not eating whole foods, you're probably going to struggle to get micronutrients in that you would from the whole foods, like fruits, vegetables, etc. Okay, so technically it is possible to have a diet purely consisting of things like mcdonald's if you only ate mcdonald's provided you were in a calorie deficit but ultimately if you're not getting your micronutrients in you're probably going to feel like anyways yeah and also you could downstream become deficient in vitamin that you're probably going to lack from eating just mcdonald's and then you become ill and then what's the point of losing that weight if you can't do anything and then you end up with an eye patch and a wooden leg, like a uh, like the pirates. Yeah, and they do that yellow eye walking vitamins you study. Okay, so if I was looking to lose body fat, maybe lose a bit of timber before the holidays, what would you suggest as a good place to start as a diet for fat loss? Okay, so calorie deficit, as we've discussed, that's going to be that's going to drive weight loss. That's going to be the most important thing. The means of how you get there matters a bit less. Well, it doesn't matter less, but it's not a specific. There's not a bet, best fat loss diet. The biggest predictor of dietary success is adherence. So it's going to be the diet that you can stick to. So it's finding what works for you. All dietary approaches are d- different means of bringing about the same result. So within that, I'd say don't be overly restrictive. Like if what I often say to clients or people talking to me about this topic is, and they say, oh, I'm going to try X diet because I've heard it's good or it works for my friend. I say, okay, could you could you do that for the next year? And oftentimes they'll say, no. And I say, okay, well, why are you going to do it for three months? Don't go on a diet that you can't stick to long-term because long-term it will fail. Even if you want short-term fix, you'll come off that diet, you'll go back to the previous diet, you'll end up regaining, which is what often happens. The yo-yo dieting. Yes, exactly. That's why it's so common. Mm. And that's why people say, you can't lose weight because you just gain it because the research does show that most people regain, but it's because of these things. So yeah, don't be overly restrictive. If it's not sustainable long-term, then it's you're likely not going to stick to it, even short-term. 
you might for the first week or two when motivation's high, but week three when you start feeling a bit pants because you're in a calorie deficit, you're going to just go back. Protein is very important when losing weight and the requirements are actually higher than those people looking to gain weight, which is a bit counterintuitive when people hear that, but the requirements for, from what the research seems to show for weight loss is around, is between 2.3 and 3.1 grams per kilogram, and this is of lean body mass. So that previous requirement of 1 to 6 to 2.2, that was total body mass. This one's lean body mass, so total weight minus fat mass percentage, body fat percentage, which people are thinking, Christ, I've got to do another estimate, do another calculation. A simple way I suggest people do that is take your goal weight as your lean body mass weight. And then within that range, scale up for leanness, essentially. If you're a lean individual, like four weeks out from stepping on stage or whatever as a bodybuilder, you probably want to be aiming to that 3.1. If you're someone with 20, 30 kilograms to lose, you're probably safer going much lower. Another thing the research seems to show is that intermittent approaches seem to work better than just a linear approach. So let's say, for example, you you need to diet for a year or you want to diet for a year to get to your goals. Taking an intermittent approach with breaks in the diet, so 12 weeks of fat loss, one to two weeks of maintenance, another 12 weeks and so on, does seem to show more promising results than just a linear 12-month constant diet. For a couple of reasons, I think there's the physiological resetting of some hormones around Hanbell, like ghrelin and lectin, and then also just the psychological thought of, you know, I've got another six weeks to go and I've got a break, rather than I don't know how long I'm doing this for. This is crap. I don't want to do it anymore. Yep. So eat the biscuit, have the cake, keep the protein high, and then just try and be consistent with it. Set yourself a goal in sort of a time-constrained goal where you're not got this infinite spiral of trying to deprive yourself and have a deficit where you end up with poor mood and and things like that. And that deficit, I'd say anywhere between 10 and 25%. So once you've got your calorie requirements, minus 10 to 25%, you know, if you feel good, go lower. And if you start on 10, feel good, you can go lower. If you start on 25, it's a crap, go higher, find what works for you. But yeah, don't restrict yourself to foods that you enjoy. Keep the protein high and set short-term and long-term goals, I think. Okay, perfect. You talked about maintenance and deficit and things like that. How would one go about calculating what their maintenance calories would be to then work out what a deficit bit would be? Just using calculator or one of the many calorie equations online, like a Harris Benedict one is a pretty good one to recommend. A trap that most people fall down is that they put there, so you, you have a multiplier then of how much exercise or active or how active a person you are. A lot of people overestimate how active they are, so then they end up with a higher calorie requirement than they actually are. And then when you take it away from it, you probably end up in maintenance. But it's one of those, you know, it's estimates of estimates. So there's going to be error in there. If you work it out, do it for a, like two weeks. If the scales haven't changed, if you don't look any different in the mirror, you probably estimate they're wrong, go lower. If the rate of loss seems quite fast, you can slow it down. So it's the more data you have, I think, going forward, the more accurate you can get that estimate to do. So I've done a few cycles, if you like, of trying to sort of lean out a bit more and things like that. Uh, there's a couple of things I've done that I've, I've found quite useful, but I'll talk about them in a minute. But I just wanted to ask if you know of any tools or tips or tricks to be able to be in a deficit or reduce calories slightly without drastically changing your diet. So I guess the obvious one there is portion sizes. You could essentially just reduce the portions of what you're eating now by X percent and you'd eat less, but you're not actually changing the diet that much. Including, obviously, high protein we've discussed, but ensuring there's protein in every meal for the satiation effect and the muscle preservation effect. Include high fibre, lots of fruits and vegetables, because these tend to be 
again, just high food volume, highly satiating foods with not many calories. There are a couple of sort of basic tips that I'd recommend to anyone doing fat loss. Make sure you're hydrated as well to prevent the water. What are the what were the things that you've tried? That's something I need to improve on, just make sure I get enough water. So I have tried, uh, I saw it a few years ago maybe, and I, I tried it out and uh, it had some quite good effects. Obviously I can't determine if it's exactly the cause of that, but some things I've implemented are things like switching oils out for sprays, high, just full fat versions to the low and lighter fat versions. So if that's, if you like to drink Coca-Cola, for example, I'd, I'd go for like a Coke Zero. Things like light mayonnaise instead of full fat mayonnaise, because the calorie difference in those two is actually pretty mind blowing when you actually compare them side by side and things to that effect. Yeah, those are all pretty good ones as well. I'd agree with all of them, like the cutting out liquid calories, which is pretty much what you said, the, the full sugar coke there is a good one because that's not satiating you at all. And I think research backs this up as well. When people who did predominantly drink sugar sweetened beverages, replace them with artificially sweetened beverages, they do lose weight when the calories outside of that are controlled for, because you're just replacing, I don't know, what was it, 150 calories with zero. So makes sense. Does when you eat make a difference at all? So if you are waking up and eating or there's certain aspects of like being training fasted and things like that, does, does that make a difference? So this is chromium nutrition, which is nutrition timing, is one I've actually changed my mind on very recently. So I used to think, no, because there was mountains and mountains of research that when calories were equated and when protein was equated between groups, the difference in weight loss and weight gain wasn't seen. It was the same, whether they had a large dinner or a large breakfast or anything in between, or like one large meal, three large meals. And time and time again, the research show when everything was controlled for properly, that there would be no differences in outcomes. But that's when everything's controlled for. And that's not free living conditions, which normal everyday people are actually living in. Like when people go on diets, they don't do it like they would in a research study in a metabolic ward or with check-ins. They, they do it off their own back in freedom conditions. And there's a recent study, I think out of Bath, James Betts' lab, called the Big Breakfast Study. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, I haven't, no. Did a lot of news a bit recently. And what they found is that front-loading calories, i.e. having a larger breakfast, seems to have a greater effect on satiety and decreasing hunger throughout the day when compared to a group having smaller breakfast and a larger dinner, so backloading their calories. So the people with the larger breakfast were more satiated. And obviously this, when this would play out in the real world, if you live in conditions, would typically lead to the larger front-loaded calorie group eating less long-term. That's interesting because there's, there's been quite a rise in things like intermittent fasting and, and skipping breakfast. And obviously people have said there's that phrase, never skip breakfast and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So maybe that's a bit more true than I initially thought if we were talking about front-loading calories. Well, it's a difficult one. Do you know, by the way, do you know who created the breakfast is the most important meal of the day slogan? No. Kellogg's. Did they? All right. <laughs> this, this shows the impact that food marketing can have, right? Yeah. Everyone at one point has either now still believes breakfast is the most important meal of the day or did believe it at one point. I certainly did growing up. Yeah. And it's just marketing from a food company that made breakfast cereal to promote their breakfast cereal. So no, breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day, but yeah, well, what we just touched on, if you are looking to lose weight and appetite is a potential issue there, it might be worth trying to eat a bigger breakfast and a smaller dinner, but which is quite contrary to what the flipped into what we do in, in the UK, I'd, I'd say. But yeah, the intermittent fasting thing, obviously that's wherever, wherever the fasting window is, you're just decreasing the time frame that you eat foods. 
So you can expect that you probably did it less. You remove meals. Okay. So you're constraining the time window in which you eat. Therefore, you're more likely to consume less calories because the meals that you're doing within that time are filling you up and you're not going to have as much time to digest and sort of get to the point where your hunger levels are increased again. Yeah, pretty much. It's just a simple yes, no. And it, it seems to be quite good for a lot of people, especially overweight and obese people. Fasting seems to be good for because it gives them that simple black or white answer. Am I in my eating window? Yes or no? And it becomes much easier. Like we make 200 to 300 decisions per day around food. And that decision fatigue of the example I always give, if you're in the office and it's someone's birthday and everyone brings cake in, if you've got to walk past that cake 10, 15, 20 times a day, Say a no every time builds up and gets hard. If you're somebody who identifies as not eating during that time, it's just a hard no. Yeah, I'm normally 15 donuts deep by that <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't do it. Yeah, so there's, it, it, it does seem to have some benefits in that sense, but there are a lot of proponents online that push intermittent fasting as this magical thing, but really outside of the calorie restriction benefits it brings. Like when you compare it to just calorie restriction by another means, doesn't really seem to have any benefit, extra benefits. Okay. There's one more point I just want to touch on before I move on, and that is we've talked about see, the importance of maintenance calories and deficit, and we've discussed that in quite a bit of detail. How can someone actually figure out what they're eating in terms of calories? Is there a tool that we could use to be able to ascertain what you're what you're eating? It's just, if, if you want to know that, I guess it's just tracking or logging whatever means you were to use, whether it be by an app, whether it be by a pencil, and paper, some log, and then do a bit of research yourself. I guess that's the only way to really do it. I know there's a lot of stigma around tracking. Some people don't like it. It could cause problems with some people. Most people, I think it'll be fine for. As long as it's not longer term, and that goes back to the importance of having a, a window in which to do it, both short term and long term. Yeah, I think so. I think a, a period of tracking is dense. It can be beneficial to most people. And yeah, you don't want it to be a long-term thing. You want to use it as an experience to learn, I guess, what you're consuming, what works for you. And then what I try and encourage clients of mine to do, because typically tracking is the route we go down, where we can both see the food diary. I try and get them then long-term to say, okay, let's try a day now without tracking or a week without tracking and see how you get on. Typically, that period of tracking will be a learning experience for them. So you become a bit more familiar with what you're eating and sort of what it contains. Yeah, and it becomes a, a bit more of a habit, a bit more intuitive. Yeah. What about supplementation? Is there any recommendations on that front? Yeah, so what I say is supplements are probably right at the tip of Maslow's hierarchy of needs when it comes to nutrition, if you're going to do a hierarchy of needs pyramid for it. So getting the basics right before that, I'd say should be the priority. People often approach it the completely wrong way and just start looking for quick fixes, supplements, etc. So get the basics right first is typically where I like to what I like to recommend people do. So good nutrition, yeah. training, sleep, stress management, that kind of stuff. But yeah, there are some supplements that seem to work. Basic ones, you know, a multivitamin, we've discussed micronutrients, it's difficult to know if you're getting enough micronutrients in. The way to decipher if you are would probably be blood work, but even then, one blood work is like a snapshot in time. You'll want to do it again, you want to get consistent results. And my argument then is the cost of doing those multiple blood tests could be a lot more than probably just buying a good quality multivitamin as like an insurance blanket, really. Vitamin D, if it's not included within that multivit, especially for us in the UK, for nine months of the year yep. only. <laughs> it's oh, great. so great. Um, Omega-3 or algae oils, if you're a vegan or want to avoid fish products, are a good one. Unless you're having a couple 
two, three servings of oily fish a week, you're probably not getting enough EPA and DHA from omega-3s. So that might be one worth supplementing with. Creatine, I find myself typically recommending to most people, even outside of sports performance and strength sports. Benefits the research seem to be showing around creatine just seems to grow and grow. There's even some good research coming out around, we store about 5% of it in our brain, and it seems to have some cognitive benefits as well. So that's a pretty good one. But without knowing someone's specific goals or the outcome they want, it's difficult to recommend too many supplements, you know. A real real good source, resource for that is examine.com, which looks at outcomes. So you can look at an outcome you want and it'll recommend supplements and it'll give them a rating, how good they are based on human research, which is very important, not rats or in vitro studies. You talked about creatine there. I know there's been a bit of scepticism in the past surrounding creatine and there's, there's the old sort of, I don't know if it's a myth or not, perhaps you can tell us about they fill your muscles with water and, and things like that and that's all they do. What are some of the key benefits of, of creatine then? So to understand that, so creatine does draw water into the muscles, actually. There's a lot of people think that then that makes you look a bit like bloated, but it draws water in intracellularly, so within the muscle cell. So if anything, it'll make you appear more muscular than like a bloated look. To understand the benefits of creatine, you probably need to understand energy systems a bit. So the creatine phosphate, ATPCP, which is adenosine triphosphate, which is the simplest form of energy or the only form of energy that the body uses. So all we're talking about with like fats and carbs and that downstream cellular level gets used as ATP to produce energy. So the, the energy system of ATP, CP, which is creatine phosphate, is anything up to about six seconds of like maximal effort. So think like a heady lift, lift, a long jump, 60 meter sprint, those kind of movements that for that initial six seconds, roughly of work, we'll use creatine to create ATP. Basically, we get creatine from food, but we can get more from supplementing it than we probably could from just eating food in the diet. So by supplementing with it, then you saturate your muscles with creatine phosphate, which can get used in that energy system, so like heavy lifts and stuff. So brings about increases in power, strength, sprints, those kind of things. Just, just super saying when you take creatine. <laughs> yeah, but don't, like all I'm saying, you know, the benefits, it sounds really good. It's not going to make you like put 10 kg on your bath squat overnight, but it's safe, it works, it's cheap. Okay. Let's wrap this one up. If someone wants to find out a little bit more about the work you do, maybe get involved in some coaching from you, where can they go? Cool. I'm on Instagram as at the Food Coach UK. I'll be on, on Facebook as well, but pretty much Facebook is just linked to my Instagram. Lewis, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this chat today, and I will put some of those studies, if I can get them off you, in the show notes afterwards. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Reese. Thanks for your time. <laughs>